That Girl podcast is sponsored by Compassion First Pet Hospitals, a family of specialty and emergency hospitals across the country committed to offering the highest level of veterinary care and improving patient outcomes by bringing together passionate professionals driven by collaboration, empowerment, and integrity. For more information, please visit us at www.compassionfirstpets.com. Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Brooke Fowler, who's a board-certified veterinary oncologist and works at Aspen Meadow Veterinary Specialist, which is part of the Compassion First team. Dr. Fowler, thank you so much for joining us for today's Vet Girl podcast. Thanks for having me. So just so our audience knows who you are, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about who you are, where you trained, and where you are right now? So I am a Midwest girl, grew up in Chicago. Uh, Went to vet school at the University of Illinois and then, you know, bopped around, did a private practice internship, did an unpaid, I feel like I have to say unpaid because it was, I fought for that, um, oncology internship in Missouri and then residency at Missouri and private practice now. All right. So what I wanted to ask you today is, honestly, what's new with veterinary oncology? And I wanted to step back, first of all, by saying, say as a general practitioner or as an emergency veterinarian, I've just diagnosed a dog or a cat with neoplasia. I wanted to see if you could fill us in on some of the mistakes that you see us making before we refer cases on things that we can improve when it comes to that referral to the veterinary oncologist. Sure. That's a fantastic question. Generally speaking, I would say one of the most common questions I get, and I don't know if it's a mistake, it's just people aren't quite sure what to do, is the case that comes in with lymphoma and it can't get the referral to the oncologist for a week and a half or two weeks. And the question is, do we start PRED or don't we start PRED? And I get this question all the time, and it's a a very actually intelligent question because starting steroids on a lymphoma case can start treating the lymphoma and then you get the case in and you go, well, I think this dog probably had big lymph nodes and there were some tests that we could have run, but we can't run those tests anymore. But that's a really soft line. So my statement to the veterinarians who call and ask me that is, you know, just educate your clients, say, hey, we can start a therapy right now, but it may cloud our ability to get a diagnosis or get some staging tests later down the road. The preference would always be, hey, make sure you get a cytology, make sure you do something to obtain that diagnosis before you start a steroid. And the bottom line is always be pragmatic, right? A dog that is going to die if it doesn't get a steroid before it sees me, give the dog the steroid. Absolutely. I would rather the dog show up alive and have a, you know, a more complicated ultrasound than not make it to its appointment in two weeks. So start the steroid as long as you just let the clients know that some of the tests such as immunophenotyping, if you want to get flow cytometry on a lymph node, starting steroids for a couple of weeks gets a little tricky. Some staging tests can get a little tricky just because you've obviously started to treat that tumor. So I would say that's probably one of the most common things that I see in terms of, you know, off the bat diagnosis. The other thing that I would say I commonly see is your classic PCC. I see a lot of cases come to me where, hey, 
you know, the typical dog that comes in to see you with a urinary tract infection gets treated and should get better. A case that you're really trying to mess with for three, four months of recurrent urinary tract infections, that should be a pretty early trigger. We should probably throw an ultrasound on that belly because I would say one of the most common things that I see is urinary tract infections that have been going on for six months, you know, on and off, and then eventually they come to see me and, hey, it's a tumor. Obviously, that's a really clouded point of view because the only ones that ever come to see me are the ones that actually have the tumor. But I think that that should probably be a management trigger sometime earlier on in that process before it gets to that point. All right. And you brought up a great question. You know, a lot of veterinary oncologists will say, oh, we'll just do flow cytometry. What exactly is that? And is there anything we can do? Like, do I save an extra purple top? Do I save an extra unstained slide? What can I do if in the event that I need to start that dog on steroids that can potentially help you with advanced diagnostics like that? Oh, Justine, you just stumbled onto one of my favorite topics. So molecular diagnostics are absolutely the wave of the future. And when it comes to lymphoma, the general spiel that I give people is, hey, the only thing that I need to treat your dog is a cytology and blood work. And after that, everything else is frosting on the cake. So somebody who comes in with major money concerns, I would never take money out of the treatment pot to put it into these diagnostic pots. However, these diagnostics obviously help prognosticate. And so there's two different molecular diagnostics that can be run on dogs with lymphoma to try to get immunophenotypes, so B or T cell. And the slide that you had mentioned is something that you can do. So you make your cytology, the dog leaves the clinic, you send it into your pathologist, they diagnose lymphoma. You can run a test called PAR, PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement right on those slides. So you don't need any other samples. It's pretty good test in dogs, pretty sensitive, fairly specific on getting B versus T cell. What gives you a little bit more information is flow cytometry. So flow cytometry can give you not just B or T cell, but it can give you some additional prognostic markers, things that you may see, um, high MHC content, other cell markers that can show up. The way that flow cytometry works is it's fairly similar to your CBC machine. So they feed it through a laser and the laser essentially has an algorithm that says cells are this big and this complicated, it's a neutrophil. That's this big and this complicated, it's a lymphocyte. Well, they're doing these and then essentially it will add up all the monomorphic population of cells that it's counting and say, oh, look, these are all lymphocytes. And not only are they lymphocytes, they're all exactly the same. So that's the marker of cancer, a monomorphic population of cells. And then they can add markers onto those cells that basically indicate, hey, it's CD3 positive, it's a T cell or things like that. So there's lots of different things, lots of leukemias we can diagnose that way. The trick with flow cytometry is you really can't save anything. So those cells have to come live. It needs to come out of the dog's body, into the tube and out to the pathologist. And even at that, it can't come on a funky day. So I can't send anything on a Friday because it will arrive to the lab on Saturday and those cells will be dead on Monday by the time they run them. So timing is a bit trickier, but the information you get is a little bit better. All right. Super helpful. And just in case we've forgotten, which is worse, B or T and what's the big difference? So I always used to teach the vet students T is 
the worst one. So T is terrible. And then one day a vet student raised their hand and said, but B is bad. And I was like, yeah, but terrible is still worse than bad. So T is the worst one for a multicentric lymphoma. B is the better one. There are some other very much less usual leukemias. So like CLL actually are T-cell leukemias, and those are actually better. So it really depends on the anatomic form of lymphoma that you're treating. Wonderful. Thank you. Of course, I'm only going to remember it the way the vet student said it, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you're like, what? It's bad. No, it's terrible. All right. And then it is interesting because, you know, unfortunately in the emergency room, I diagnose neoplasia almost every shift. And it's very oh, yeah. hard for owners, especially when it's being diagnosed through the emergency room or through the specialty clinic. And I always tell people, you know, when in doubt, at least schedule that oncology appointment so you can talk to the oncologist that doesn't commit you to the full diagnostic workup or the full long, you know, year of chemo. What are some general communication tips you would recommend giving when it comes to enhancing an understanding of how we're going to treat this oncology patient? Justine, do you mean from the ER doctor disseminating the information or from the point where I jump in there and say, hey, this is what we're dealing with? Yeah, great question. I guess to clarify, I'm talking to the pet owner and you know, I start talking mm-hmm. about, well, we have the option of doing chemotherapy and seeing the oncologist. They're like, nah, nah, we don't want to do that. And that's right. why I usually step in and say, you know what, just make the appointment. They might quote you different numbers. It doesn't commit you to doing the chemotherapy um, because I always think it's important for them to talk to an oncologist about it. Is there something that you recommend in terms of communicating to that pet owner to at least go with that initial visit or maybe even talking about side effects from chemo. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic point. And you know, human cancer has a whole lot of stigma associated with it. We do really crazy things to people. And I and I tell this to owners when they first walk in, you know, people can make their own choices. They can say, I choose to feel bad for the next four months because I get that it's extending my life. You know, Dogs, as far as I can tell, and cats, don't have an understanding of their mortality. They just know how they feel in the moment. And so I always tell people that whether we're going to give a dog three months or three years, the fact that I can't explain to your pet, hey, this is really going to suck for the next three months, but it's for your own good, means that I can't do anything like that to them for the next three months. And just explaining the differences that, hey, The goal of veterinary oncology is, yes, to extend your dog or cat's life, but it's also to just make what's there better. It's about maximizing it. And I often get people who have preconceived notions of what chemotherapy is going to be like and what cancer is going to be like, and they walk in the door, and by the end of it, they're like, okay, I guess I'll try one. I'll try one dose. Everything's about one dose. You know, you think about a five-sequence protocol, it's overwhelming. You you get bogged down. It's forever. It's costly. Today is just about the dose. And if you hate it, then you will suffer two days and be done. We never have to do it again. And at the very least, I am very skilled at least in helping people grieve what is happening. So to have somebody that you can call and go, oh, my dog's limping worse today. Do you think, what is this? What should I do? Can we do any pain meds? I I call them tricks up my sleeves. I have lots of tricks up my sleeves uh, at getting animals and their people because the people are such a huge part of this to just get through this. You know, a lot of this is just taking care of people. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, I know one of the newest 
updates in veterinary oncology is electrochemotherapy. What exactly is that? And do you mind just talking to us about the pros and cons and what evidence might be out there? Electrochemotherapy is a modality for treating localized disease processes. So sarcomas, things that are growing that are unlikely to spread or not a systemic problem. So similar to a surgery or a radiation where you would just be treating the area that you were focusing that therapy on. Electrochemotherapy is essentially a way to deliver large doses of chemotherapy locally. So cells are made intentionally and evolutionarily to be complicated, the hydrophilic, hydrophobic layers to keep things out and let things in, but they naturally have these voltage-gated ion channels that allow your electrolytes to pass back and forth. And What happens when you apply an electric voltage over those cells is that those gates are propped open for about an hour, and in that hour, you can stick anything you want to into those cells, and people are taking advantage of this. They're doing gene therapy and Botox, of course, and um, for us, we can try chemotherapy, and there is... I would say this is probably what I mention in juxtaposition with radiation. So, hey, after surgery, we do a surgery and we leave some cancer cells behind. How do we ensure that those don't regrow? If someone said to me, I want the gold standard, I don't care how much time, how far I have to travel, um, or how costly it is, I say, yep, absolutely, radiation. There's hundreds of papers out there talking about the effects and radiation, and we have a lot more prognostics. But electrochemotherapy is a really good alternative because you need a heck of a lot fewer treatments. And in a much fewer number of papers, tumors like incompletely resected mast cell tumors and incompletely resected soft tissue sarcomas have pretty similar survival times and tumor recurrence times to radiation. So it's a wonderful alternative. Side effects tend to be really pretty minimal, a day of an ice pack or a Rimadyl day, and dogs are fine. So they don't get the burns or anything like that. There is a rare incidence of necrosis. So we end up being very good at treating the cancer, but we turn out to be very good at treating the skin in that area, which really stinks. It's it's rare. It's 7%, but it ends up resulting in a dog with a wound that you have to manage, and most certainly nobody wants that. Um, but generally speaking, it, it it's a fantastic alternative, and I use that word very intentionally, to radiation therapy. Is it something that all oncologists offer and I know it's difficult to assess costs, but do you have a general guideline in terms of cost and commitment from the owner on how often treatment is? Sure. It's not offered all that commonly. For example, I think we might be the only ones in Colorado right now, but on the listserv, the oncology listserv, I think there's probably somewhere between 20 and 30 of us kind of smattered throughout the United States. Costs generally range around $1,000 a dose. And the number of doses depends on the way that you're using the electrochemotherapy. So, for example, the most common and best use of electrochemotherapy would be, hey, we go out and we cut out a soft tissue sarcoma, and we know we're not going to get those three-centimeter, one fascial plane deep surgical margins. So we do a dose while the dog's in the operating room, and then we wait for those pathology results to come back. Typically, two doses is pretty common. 
sometimes three if it looks like a little bit more of an aggressive tumor. The only time we really go past three is in the setting where we've got a bulky tumor. Hey, there's this giant mass and it's growing in a mouse or on a leg, then we can't do surgery first or the client doesn't want to. Then we start saying, hey, electrochemotherapy can go up into the five, six dose ranges. It was actually developed for those uh, white cat squamous cell carcinomas, those solar-induced ones, and actually four or five doses of electrochemotherapy in most cats are cured. So it's fantastic for things like that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Any other last tips that you want to leave with us when it comes to oncology and our veterinary patients? There's a really new interesting test. Uh, I mentioned TCC earlier. The wave of the future, so the way that human oncology is going, and we tend to ride those coattails, is molecular-based, right? I got all excited when we started talking about flow cytometry, the nerd in me. But when We are doing diagnostics. We are trying to get better and better at diagnosing things without having to take big pieces of dog or cat, for that matter. You know, it stinks to go in and have to biopsy something surgically when you know you're not going to cure a patient. And one of those classic tumors is a TCC. We see these tumors. It's cumbersome to get a diagnosis sometimes. you got to feed a catheter up there or get a scope up there and yank a piece. There is a test, a BRAF mutation test. So this test looks for a mutation in the DNA that is being shed by these tumors. So you literally just have to collect a urine sample, send it out to the lab. 93% of TCCs, that's prostate tumors and bladder tumors, are detected by this test. 7% are not. So if you get a negative, there is a possibility you still have it. And it is almost 100% specific. So if you come out positive with this BRAF mutation, you got it. And it's wonderful and it's easy. And I think the further into oncology we go, the more tests like this are going to be getting diagnosed. Wonderful. Thank you so much. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm very passionate about this uh, just because my own pit bull was treated with SRT for brain tumor, Yeah, was I wanted to see if you could just talk about the difference between RT, radiation therapy, and SRT, stereotactic radiation therapy, because I really didn't understand it until it actually happened to my own dog. And I think it's, well, it's not readily available. I think it's really important for general practitioners and veterinarians to be aware of. Absolutely. And honestly, if you've gone through the process, you could probably teach me a few things about the difference between RT and SRT, Uh, but I'll give it a fair shake. So radiation, your tissues are limited with radiation by how much you can put into a normal tissue. I didn't phrase that that well. Essentially what I mean is you've got a tumor and it's sitting on your leg the amount of radiation you can get into that tumor is relative because you want to kill the tumor, but you don't want to harm the normal tissues in that area. So traditional radiation, in order to get the amount, so the dose, and it's no different than amoxicillin, for example. Here's 500 milligrams. Radiation's the same thing. The doses are measured in gray. So in a tumor that you want to get 60 gray of radiation into, traditionally, we have broken up radiation into incremental fractions so that in between those fractions, all your normal tissues in the area can recover. So a traditional dose of radiation would be, hey, a dog has to go in 18 to 20 times, Monday through Friday for an entire month to get the effects of radiation. 
And the normal tissues in that area do take a large amount of dose. So they do get side effects. You get burns in your mouth and on your skin, and you tend to get some other ramifications. With SRT, the goal is to give the same amount of radiation, but in a far fewer number of treatments. And the reason that they can do that is because the machines have become so sophisticated that your dog or cat undergoes a CT scan, and then with the machine, they very carefully contour that radiation around the tumor itself. And you can get the same dose of radiation into a tumor in only three or four treatments there are some limitations. So for bone tumors, for example, SRT is only available if the risk of fracture is low. So those cortices have to be intact, things like that. There are some places that SRT cannot be performed. I have seen tumors in like the rostral jaw be declined for SRT because, hey, that tumor necrosing and dying will cut off blood supply to the rostral portion of the mandible. So those are some instances. And uh, a scenario where SRT is not relevant, so you need a tumor to shoot at in order to do SRT. And what I mean is often the indication for radiation is you go in and remove a tumor, there's tumor cells left behind, those guys are going to want to regrow. You go in and you do traditional radiation because there's no actual mass that they're shooting at. There's nothing to contour. There's nothing to plan to. You have to have a brain tumor, for example, in your dog's case scenario, or a mass on a body to shoot at in order to be able to do SRT. And SRT stands for stereotactic radiation therapy. Thank you so much. I think that's really helpful. That's exactly the way the oncologist I was consulting with from my own dog explained it. And I felt really fortunate. My dog ended up having uh, three to four SRT treatments and I got 13 months with his presumptive glioblastoma, which was amazing. And, you know, the criticalist in me was so paranoid about my dog being propofol down, you know, five times a week for an extended period of time. But uh, yeah, when in doubt, I always recommend consult with a veterinary oncologist because you guys are so amazing when it comes to knowing the literature and keeping up to date on the stats and the research. So uh, really- Oh, that's nice. Yeah, really important that we make sure to appropriately communicate with our pet owners about the benefits of consulting with an oncologist. Dr. Fowler, again, a huge thank you for joining us for today's Vet Girl podcast. And again, really appreciate it. Justine, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. 